Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 588 for the 23rd of February 2022. Drummer Jared Schoenig is much loved both in the New York jazz community and amongst Broadway musicians. He took on the gargantuan brilliant task of releasing a double album, Two Takes, Volumes 1 and 2, on Anzac Records in September 2021. The recording features quartet renditions of his music, followed by big band arrangements of the same repertoire by eight of the great jazz arrangers today. Jim McNeely, Miho Hazama, Darcy James Argue, Alan Ferber, Lawrence Hobgood, Brian Crock, John Diversa, and Mike Holliber. You really can't top that list. The result is musically exciting and impressive, bridging the gaps between big band jazz sounds, progressive rock, and contemporary jazz. Here is our conversation. Welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. It's a pleasure to have you. I feel like I addressed you as if I'm just meeting you now for the first time and we've never met in person. That is not true. true. Um, (laughs) I know this format suddenly makes one all sort of using full names. Yes. You know, really, I should be saying, hey, Jason, what's up? Welcome to the show. Yeah. (laughs) Not that I ever called you that before, but there's no time like the present. You can call me whatever you want. You got it. Yeah, I think I feel a name rebrand coming on, and I want people to know it started on this show with with Jason. Started here. Not your full first name, nor your full last name, but whatever. No, I like it. Yeah. It's all good. Um, Stadium's alight with that in in neon lettering. (laughs) Well, we were just discussing off air that the last time you were on the podcast was with Jason way back in 2009 with the Wii Trio. So this is your first time coming on as your, not as yourself. You weren't there you know, dressed up, but um, coming on as, as, a, as a band leader, right? Under your own name. Correct. It is an absolutely mighty and dazzling undertaking. Um, both albums are really gorgeous and conceptually so, so strong. The albums are called Two Takes, Volume 1 Quintet and Volume 2 Big Band, out on the 24th of September on Anzic Records, which is a wonderful label. 
owned by, co-owned, I should say, by friends of the show, Anat Cohen and, and Oded Levari, and you're in fabulous company, both being on that label, but also in terms of the musicians on this album. So I will shut up. Why don't you tell us about the concept for your debut albums, plural? Sure. Um, so it all started with uh, kind of the the breaking up of the We Trio, you know, so I'm primar- primarily known as a sideman, but I had a collaborative trio called the We Trio for many years. Um, I would call ourselves, you know, rather successful. We did a lot of great things. We put a lot of great music out. Um, we toured a lot, spent a lot of time together and developed a very deep uh, musical bond together. And as life moved on, um, the other members, uh, took different paths in their lives and you know it wasn't feasible to tour so we kind of decided you know this is this was going to be the end um and that was maybe three years ago i think our last gig was maybe the beginning of 2018 or 19 i can't remember but you know i I was looking forward and thinking how do i want to keep going as a as a creative artist and you know i wanted to do a record of my original music um, a lot of it had been recorded uh, previously with the We Trio, but a lot of it hadn't. And there were certain musicians that I wanted to record with, so I kind of envisioned this quintet project. Um, and I knew that's where it would start. And um, a couple of those musicians that I knew I wanted from the very beginning were Marquise Hill on trumpet, who is an incredible trumpet player, composer, band leader, and just friend and human being. And um, we worked together many years ago uh, in Lawrence Hobgood's quintet, um, did a wonderful Midwest tour with Ernie Watts on tenor saxophone, and it was just great. And I got to know Marquise really well. And this is like, you know, five, six years ago, and Marquise was playing incredibly, but still not as well-known as he is now. Um, and another musician I knew I wanted to have was Godwin Louis, who is I had been hearing about and met down in New Orleans with the We Trio when he was there in the Monk Institute. And we played together finally, I think, in uh, another one of Anzic, uh, Anzic's label mates, Melissa Stiliano. We played together in her band and we had an immediate kind of musical simpatico and and he was again another wonderful human being and uh so i knew i wanted to have those two guys in the front line and uh i had played with the great luis perdomo many times before in different contexts he played with the we trio um knew he'd be fantastic and uh bass player matt closey is a very old friend of mine who I've logged countless hours and on many recording sessions and tours with. So he was, he was very early on, uh, in my mind for that project. And so where the whole crazy idea came from, I think is I always want to do a big band record. Um, I love big band. I play in lots of them. It's a very part, a very big part of my musical history. And, uh, we always kind of had ideas to do with the We Trio, but we were doing our own arrangements, and you know they were fine, they were good, but I knew they could be better, and I and I, you know, wanted to take advantage of all these relationships I've had with these great large ensemble writers and arrangers. 
Um, so I thought, wouldn't it be an amazing idea to have these people just do arrangements of these same eight compositions that were going to be on this quintet record? And uh, I've always enjoyed people's different takes on music, like hearing, you know, standards, obviously approached by different musicians, but then even just um, more modern compositions having an arranger do their take on it so uh that's where it came from and and i finally was like okay i'm gonna do this i think it's gonna be a a, a giant endeavor and i hope i can do it and luckily i got most of it done um prior to the pandemic it was a very crazy week of recording i basically did both records within a span of a week in new york in october of 2019 and um yeah that's 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 how it happened. But that means that you were recording, in essence, a quintet album. And then you were going back into the studio within the week to record a big band album on which you were playing drums. So you had to learn drum parts for all of these tunes, these big band arrangements. And even though it's your tunes, you, you're dealing with notated parts that you didn't notate now, yeah. other arrangers. And I also just want to say, because you're being very sly about this, Jared, but you didn't just like, the Afrikaans word Correct. is soma, which means, you know, you just slap it together. But you didn't just soma get Joe Boggs down from the block to, to come and do your big band arrangements. Yeah. You have big band arrangements by Darcy James Argue, John Diversa, Alan Ferber, Jim McNeely, Miho Azama, who's also right. a friend of the show, Mike Holliber, Lawrence Hobgood, your prior band leader when you were playing with him, uh, and Brian Crock. Have I? I haven't missed anyone else out, have I? Nope. You got it. No. No, but it sounds a little bit like I just made that up. It's like me saying, yeah, so you were in a movie with Meryl Streep and Ed Harrison. Uh, <laughs> kind of. It must be tremendous for you. Because this is very much the sort of thing that I guess a lot of jazz musicians, like if I had said to you back back in the day, if you were going to have an arranger, a big band arranger, arrange one of your tunes, who would your wish list be? And I feel like this is your would be your entire wish list of people. Totally, totally. I am, I am super fortunate to, I mean, basically, yeah, I've played in all these, I've, I've had a career playing in, you know, all these big bands, these arrangers. I've, I've toured with Darcy. I've, I met Jim and Mike doing the BMI Jazz Composers Orchestra, um, and then you know I've played with played Jim's material a lot and um, played in Mike's band. I'm on Mike's record that was you know nominated for a Grammy in 2020. Um, Miho is a is a frequent um, you know uh, band leader of mine. I've gone to Japan with her numerous times, and and she was in BMI when I was doing the band. Um, Let's see who else. Obviously, Lawrence, I play, continue to play with a lot. Uh, John Diversa, I played in his band when he started doing his New York residency for a while. Um, Alan, I've played in his band a number of, of times, and, and um, he's a wonderful friend and played with him a ton over the years. And then Brian is the only guy I didn't know who um, was a, um, referred to me by Darcy and I checked his stuff out and was really, really into it. And, and I said, okay, let's do it. And we've become friends and I'm a big fan of his, his music and his projects and just his whole aesthetic. He's a really brilliant guy and, and super talented. Um, so yeah, like I think 
had you told me 10 years, 15 years ago, I had would have not guessed that these people would have been uh, my uh, collaborators on this project. I'm very fortunate that, that basically they all said yes and they all, you know, worked with me on what was possible. Um, and they just, they all delivered in a way that was a brilliant uh, adaptation. And yeah, to answer your point, I mean, yeah, I still had to play this music, like, which was not easy. And they all did something, you know, pretty different, really different, or just a little bit different with my stuff. And uh, yeah, you know, we had one, one rehearsal uh, for this stuff. I think I had a reading session of some of the charts early on, which was probably one of the most exciting days of my life on to finally read this stuff. I think we did Jim's and Mike's and um, Alan's, like four of them were done pretty early and then four of them came later. Um, you can hear the New York City fire. Uh, Just in case you weren't sure which city Jared was coming to us yes. from. It ha um, I have to say it happens to every New Yorker I interview. Every, There's a siren, really? yeah. Jeez. It's great, it's uh, signature. That's, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we, we read those early and then we had one rehearsal to read all of them together and then we just went to the studio, but that's, that's what you do here. One of the aspects of band leading that gives me an absolute headache is scheduling, right? <sighs> Many moving yes. people. How do you make sure everybody's available the same time, the same day, the studio has to be available. I, I don't know. Um, how much listeners are aware, listeners who perhaps are not musicians are aware that this administrative aspect of being a musician, it can be relevant to a gig. You got to book the date, you got to book musicians who are available, you may have to book a rehearsal. But a recording session is a whole other beast because it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. So that all said, booking a quintet, getting into the studio, Okay. I mean, by comparison, now you're like, child's play, right? That's so easy. But I mean, this is one aspect of the sheer scale of this project. Did it not intimidate you? Did it not just the mere thought of it make you think, I need to take a nap? <laughs> uh, that is a really incredible question. Um, I, yes, it could be a big pain in the butt a lot of times. Um, personally, for me, I enjoy big challenges. Um, I'm one of those people that likes musical challenges and just challenges um, in general. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have done well in New York and stayed in New York and didn't say I'm going back to California um, because life is really difficult here and you're constantly navigating challenges. Um, and yeah, it, it can definitely wear on you and want you you know make you want to take a nap it was a big pain in the butt the sessions basically i had two bands on the sessions just so that i could a get everybody i wanted and b just have someone in the chair when i needed them to be there um you know and i also just wanted to involve as many people as i could that have been good to me and that i respect and wanted to have as part of this big band project i kind of um emulated it um off of both Mike Mike Holber's record, who kind of had two bands do his thing, and then Tony Cadleck's record, which is not out yet, um, did a similar thing where he kind of had 
the same rhythm section, but like different horn players on on each day. And that's I think that's a a great way to do it, just because you can involve more people and you can have different soloists. Um, and as far as like, yeah, there was only really one person that I couldn't get for my record, which was a bummer. And um, that's that was John Ellis, who was like just not available, you know. And I love John. John played the reading session and sounded incredible. Um, so, but yeah, for the most part, it it worked out. It was a pain in the butt. I had a lot of help. Um, my wife helped me a lot with the scheduling and with just you know taking care of some administrative things during the during the big band sessions. She also co-produced the uh, quintet record, which was really incredible to have her her ears and her um, you know musical expertise in that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pain in the butt and I'm dealing with it right now. I just sent out an email right before we talked, confirming the rehearsal for the CD release gig. And, um, you know, it's probably a couple people can make it, but that's just the way it's going to be, but most people can't. So I'm, I'm excited. It's yeah. 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 I left when I was 17, um, moved to Rochester, New York, and then uh, never went back. You know, I've been in I've been in New York State. Yeah. My, you know, more than half my life now, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. Wow. I haven't thought about it like that. Yeah. So I, yeah, I spent four years in Rochester and then moved to New York pretty, 
pretty shortly after that. Right. I don't always mention where people have studied. I'm I'm keenly aware that, especially with jazz, um, perhaps versus, you know, classical music or ethnomusicology, you learn so much by doing. And if you're lucky enough to live in a place like New York, you learn so much just by getting out and going to hear people and immersing yourself in the scene. Um, but I, at the same time, you know, we can't ignore that there are a lot of colleges and tertiary institutions that are really from like formidable and turn out a lot of great musicians. And, you know, we should mention some of the other people that I think of when I think of Eastman, which is where you studied, are the guys from Kneebody and Maria Schneider, of course, many you know, many moons before you. And uh, so I just wondered, Jared, um, given that we know tertiary education is certainly not the end all and be all in jazz, what did you get out of that experience of being at Eastman and how, I guess, important was it for you, especially in hindsight? Uh, great, great question. So I, I got an incredible amount um, out of school. Uh, I think Eastman was a really, really, really great place for me and just in general at that time. Um, everybody will say something different about like where the state of their school is at this point. Oh, you know, there's no good musicians there, you know, all the good professors left or whatever. Um, it's f Eastman. So I'll just give a little bit of background. I mean, like coming from, you know, I, I went to a giant arts magnet school, uh, high school in LA that a, a ton of incredible musicians and actors um, and musical theater actors came out of. So I was already in this, you know, the state of like, I knew I wanted to be a musician. I just kind of had to decide where I wanted to go next. Um, I visited New York City on, you know, on like, I think I auditioned at Manhattan School and got in there, but decided, you know, I would didn't want to, I kind of knew for me that I didn't want to go to a big place in a big city right away because I had already been doing that and like I needed there was a lot of work I needed to do even if I didn't know that at the time about just you know fundamental uh, jazz you know jazz drumming and my teacher was really incredible for that Rich Thompson um, at Eastman you know I had four great years with him there and yeah I, I my buddy Dan Loomis likes to joke that when I came to Eastman, I really hadn't listened to any music prior to 1965. Um, and he was right. Like, I was really into modern music, modern jazz. And, like, you know, I knew a little bit about Miles' second quintet. But, like, I couldn't tell you who Philly Joe Jones was or, you know, Roy Haynes or, you know, Joe Jones, um, even for that matter. So, like, when I got to Eastman, I really got schooled in a great way and learned a ton of stuff about jazz drums that I that I needed to learn. And so I owe a lot to my wonderful professor, uh, Rich Thompson. And so when I got there, you know, the Kneebody guys had already left, but um, the great uh, respect sextet was still there. And those guys were a few years than me and I got I basically learned a lot from A, the faculty, and B, just the incredible musicians that were there at that at that time. Um, you know, an incredible drummer, Ted Poor, was uh, you know like uh, very um, integral to kind of what I saw was possible playing the drums. And you know, um, as far as like horn players, there were a lot of guys that I really learned from. And basically, everybody. 
at Eastman was into something different musically. Like there was your group of people who were really into free jazz and really into Balkan music and really into um, large ensemble music. So like everybody hipped somebody else to something. And there was also the, the time of like, you know, like just just mass music on hard drives and like whatever, like just trading music and everybody was was just getting into everything they could and like we were getting so immersed in in all in all types of music and jazz and like pop music and um yeah it was just a great time so i i learned a lot from my peers and my professors i had great professors harold denko incredible pianist uh clay jenkins um jeff campbell bass player and combo leader um who else? So I had one year of the great Fred Sturm, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Eastman because I loved his writing. I knew he was, you know, head of the department and um, I thought he would be there all four years. And, you know, I became great friends and with his son, Ike Sturm, who's one of my closest friends and musical uh, collaborators. Um, but he ended up leaving and going back to Lawrence University where, where he was um, a prior professor and went to school. So Bill Dobbins came back um, and I spent a couple of years in his band there in his large ensemble and also a couple of years with the great Dave Ravello, um, who's an incredible writer and band leader who's, who's ba another um, band that I played with for many years, which is I, I count as like really, uh, uh, yeah, a giant part of my uh, musical um involvement if if you will um he dave is a great great writer who's whose music is like super modern and really fun to play and we played every night um or every week um at a club in rochester and who's great so again i learned a lot from him and i learned a lot from bill you know who's a, a professor of um of writing there and uh, also did the big band, the number one bands. So, but you know, yeah, I, I could, I could talk about my Eastman experience for a long period of time, but I won't, I just say that like, I, I, I got really close to a group of musicians who were a bit older, older than me. So like when it was time, when I was a senior, all the people I really played with were graduating. So like, I always say I had three really great years at Eastman. Um, uh, my senior year was was good for other reasons and different musicians but like this core group of people we called ourselves the very tall band we were the downbeat uh, winning combo of of i guess 2004 um they all left but we were very tall a lot of very tall people and one short pianist but it was uh yeah so yeah i, I have a, i have nothing but good things to say about about school um, and about my experience. Well, let's see if their admissions and enrollment goes up after this interview airs and then Eastman can, you know, Very thank cool. you profusely. I yeah. mean, I sh and thank me and stop exactly. asking for money. Exactly. This is your, you this know. is your alumni <laughs> duty done and dusted. My contribution. Quite right. Contribution. Um, yes. I will see. I mean, cool. I should mention that Jared mentioned the Respect Sextet and in fact, they're responsible for the theme music of this podcast. Uh, thanks to Jason getting that um, from them and collaborating with them in that way. And it's awesome. Something I don't really know a lot about, I guess, but the idea of a, a drummer as band leader, what do you 
look for when you're listening to other groups, small groups, quartets, quintets, that are led by drummers? When is it a successfully led ensemble with a drummer at the helm? And when is it not? I, yeah, I think it's, it's successful when it's about the music and not about the drums. Um, I, number one, you know, I didn't want to make a record that's like full of drum solos on every tune. I didn't want to make a record that's drum centric. Um, I just wanted to make a record that's full of good music and full of interplay and full of, you know, things that everyone will can gravitate towards. Um, it, it's not supposed to be just for drummers. It's not supposed to be just for whoever. It's supposed to be for everyone who appreciates good music and jazz and, and just the way it is. And I always, you know, I, I always think back to like a Brian Blades, you know, uh, music and just his records. Like it's not, it's not drum centric. It's not full of drum solos. It's just about beautiful music and the band playing together and just the journey is that that music can take you on I, it doesn't really matter to me who leads the band um as long as the the outcome and effect are, are what you're getting um but for me like he is the kind of the the number one inspiration of like drummers leading bands um i recently put together a few um playlists of like that's it let me if i can find it real quick because because this is good hold on one sec but like, um, yeah, here's some influential drummer-led recordings for me. Obviously, Brian Blade Fellowship. But the other one I really love, which is a bit more drum-centric, is just Tain, Jeff Tain Watts' records. Um, and he's like one of my heroes, one of my idols. And he's somebody, I guess, yeah, I guess between the two of them is kind of what I sought out to do with uh, my quintet record. Like have some drum solo stuff but then make most, most of the music about just playing music and having good tunes and accessible tunes that people can play over and have a good time playing over. Yeah. Are these Spotify playlists or personal playlists? They are. No, they are. They're Spotify, Spotify. playlists. Oh, brilliant. Will you email me um, the links and then I'll add oh, the links definitely. to the show notes for this episode? Cool. Yeah, great. Folks, you can go and click on the links and listen to the, the playlists, which is something I'll do. Yeah, they're sure. cool. Yeah, there, there's two of them. There's like a there's the influential combos that you know uh, that led by drummers that were part of my musical upbringing, and then there's one about uh, big bands that were led by drummers. And obviously, the you know the number one the one that comes to everybody's mind is Buddy Rich, and he's like obviously a giant part of my early musical upbringing prior to going to college. You know, because that's obviously more modern um i mean he was older of course but he really gained notoriety in probably the late 60s 70s early 80s uh, as far as his band which i loved and uh yeah he didn't write music per se but he, he always you know had an incredible like arrangers in the band and, and composers you got your Don Menzes and your Bob Menzers and yeah, just stuff like that. So
Hello, a quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join, that's thejazzsession.com slash join, it will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast. Really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy. So please do feel free to give the show a shout out. And if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms, I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so. So thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future. I am lucky to have heard you live, um, Jared, and I've also played with you a couple of times. And so I, I do, when I think of your drum sound, it really is something that's quite clear in my mind. Um, you play with a really intense uh, a clarity, an intensity. There's like a real uh, sense of intention and forward motion. And folks will be able to hear that in the excerpts of your music that they'll hear throughout this interview. And there is, there's this crispness. And I think it's so great for big band because it, it cuts through in a way that is really like, uh, I guess, solidifying, but also driving. What do you love about playing in a big band? What do you get out of it? Playing in a big band for me has always been like very, very satisfying to be able to kick the band and to set up figures. There's nothing like more satisfying and gratifying than than that for for me in a lot of in a lot of ways. I even before I was learning about like bebop language on the drums, I was learning from a great teacher I had during high school named Jerry Califf, and we would just work on setting up figures and learning how to kick a band. And so that's like a giant part of my you know my musical uh, upbringing and history and like obviously you know when you're in high school playing big band is very important and at my high school we were the best and so I I learned how to do that really uh, really well really early so I I have always like had a certain um, you know affinity for for big bands and just for being the drummer in the big band you know you're driving the bus but you're also like in, uh, you're you're responsible for so much, um, especially bass and drums. But you know when it comes to a shout chorus and and any anything like that, like you, it's your job to make it feel good and to help the band and to just like be part of that ensemble, like you know m melting pot. Um, and then you have, I feel like when you're behind a soloist, you know you also try and bring something special to that 
um, as far as like interacting and, and interplay, but you also can just sometimes just let it groove and make it feel good, um, which is something I like to do as well. But yeah, I, I, I just love um, kind of, it's like, you know, obviously you hear the term being in the pocket all, a lot in music, but there's a certain pocket you get when you're playing in a big band, uh, like in a shout chorus or, you know, setting up figures behind um, a soloist that like is very, very gratifying to me, which I really dig. Something that you do, which I think is so cool, because in some ways I think it's kind of like the ultimate day job, except it's more of a night job, is that you play um, for, you've played for a great many Broadway musicals. At the moment, are you doing Moulin Rouge? Correct. So yes. cool. And it must be really kind of emotional and overwhelming because Broadway is back and I know how affected all the performers are. What aspect of playing Broadway shows influences your jazz playing, if anything? Or what do you, in general, what do you learn from that world, which is quite different, that you then kind of do try and apply in your, your jazz life? Um, I would say, you know, I, I kind of fell into playing Broadway shows randomly. Um, it was never something that was on my radar um, as far as making a living, but it's obviously become a giant part of my life. Um, and it's just one side of my, uh, my musical life. Um, and, you know, I, I got, I started by, by subbing and subbing is a, is, is, a really weird thing you basically you go watch a great drummers book you learn everything about the show and you try and exactly like to sound like him and or her um, you know there's many great drummers with female in that um, and just saying that um, and um, you that's your job is to go in and sound exactly like them and that's not really a musical job. I mean, obviously there's a lot of things that you are doing that pertains to music, but it's more like your your job is to copy somebody as best you can. Um, so that was a challenge that I enjoyed. And some people hated it. Some people hate it and continue to hate it and think it's the worst thing ever. Um, it's very difficult. And, and it definitely, I, I always, I tell the story like, I'm, I'm never nervous to play music, but I've only been nervous twice in my life and like, one, I was playing with Winton for the first time when I was like 18 in Rochester. And two, it's subbing on Broadway shows. Um, you know, you, you, you basically never get a rehearsal. You go in, you have one chance to do it perfectly. And obviously, it's never going to be super perfect. But I prided myself on being pretty perfect when I subbed. What was the first show you subbed on? I subbed on Grease, um, oh, nice. you know, a great, a great rock show, and I subbed for a great rock drummer named John Clancy, who I continue to know and respect as an, now he's mostly an orchestrator, um, but he was the first guy to give me my shot, and then another great drummer gave me basically an equal amount of shots named Shannon Ford, who's uh, been a mentor and like is another fabulous drummer who does a lot of shows and is also a really great rock drummer with a great um, background just playing rock gigs and and has been around for a long time um, but basically after doing that you know people start to realize oh man this guy's like actually creative and can do other things so then you get hired to do your own show so my first show of my own was Pippin um, which which was in like 2013 or 413 maybe and I was I was a bit overzealous with what I did with the book. 
Um, and I kind of over, I remember that I overplayed the book. Like there's a certain time and place for, for putting your hot licks in. And if people can't sound like you when they come into sub, then the actors get mad. And basically I was, I was, you know, I had a certain book that I played, but I would interject things and play it a little different every night. And people, and the actors would know when there was a sub in and they didn't like it. And so that kind of set up my subs for, for not failure, but just not, they're never going to sound like me or not as good as me, but like it wasn't similar. So I kind of learned from that experience to, you know, d dial it back and, you know, but you got to play it as, as close to the same every night, perhaps a little different, but like, yeah, that's, so that's another challenge. And, and it, it basically is for one side of my musical brain to basically treat it like a recording studio every night. You know, I'm not there to show off and play hot licks. Um, you know, I'm there to do a job to make make it feel good and make the actors happy and make the music director happy. And you know, I've I through all my many shows that I've done, I've learned how to kind of create the best book for me. And with Moulin Rouge, I have been working on the show for you know four years already. Like it's it, it's been a long process from workshops and workshops and, and, and arrangement sessions to, you know, doing it at a town in Boston, to doing it on Broadway, to a shutdown, to now bring it back to Broadway. Um, and like, I was hired to basically play like me in, on a Broadway show. So when you listen to this cast album, you hear things that you never would have thought you could hear from a drummer on a Broadway show. I mean, it's basically like, it is a very cool, musical thing for me like I was able to to play my hot licks and my grooves and my stuff and so for me like I don't get bored of it it's really fun to play and it's basically me playing what I would play on a, like a top 40 gig or like a like a I don't know I would call it like a wedding band on steroids you know kind of vibe because we're playing pop tunes from the movie and we're playing pop tunes um that are more current because that's one great um thing they were able to do is like make it more current because obviously the movie came out in the 90s um when pop music you know pop music had its sound but like yeah they the brilliant uh, music supervisor and arranger justin levine always encouraged me to pull, do my thing and so i was really able to to get my stamp on the show which is super cool and so i think it's a little it's you know it's difficult drum wise but like it's easier for my subs to come in and sound like me which which is good. I like the parallel that you draw um, between having to play something in such a strictly kind of um, consistent way, likening that to the kind of, I guess, discipline or accuracy is a better word that you need when you're doing a recording. Because I think that that's something that a lot of jazz musicians, I was talking to Theo Blackman about this exactly, is that recording is recording. Live gig is a live gig. A live performance is a live performance. And the two are separate things. And yes, you can treat a recording session like a live thing. You could all be in one room. You could say, we're going to do it till tape. So you only get one take and you capture what you capture. Um, but more often than not, we make use of the fact that there are isolation booths. If somebody needs to drop in and redo something, they can, all of that. And the kind of discipline, especially as the drummer, because you know, you're not kind of just like 
sneaking around there in the background. It's like you you are heard even on you know the the lightest part of the drum kit. Um, that kind of precision that you need. If there's going to be another take, can you do it again the same way? That totally aligns to okay, another show, another night. And this is what is expected from the actors and the singers. And if you don't deliver it, it like completely yeah. throws, throws them, them off. off. That's so your job. Great training for that. Yeah, I love totally. That. So, I mean, that's something like you learn. You, you Nobody knows right out of college when they're starting their career like, oh, like I can, nobody says like, oh, I have to play one way when I'm in the in the recording studio and I can be much freer in the, in, in on a live gig. Nobody really knows that. It takes that's like that's a maturity thing, and you learn that as you go along. I mean, I listen to recordings that I did when I was like right out of college, and I'm like, what was I playing, you know? And I've heard other great musicians talk about this same thing, like, like, like if they they go back, they think, oh man, I would have played so differently had I known this and this and this, and just like the ability to edit yourself during during certain things is like something you get as you get older and just have done a lot of stuff in your life. Yeah, it's a kind of an amazing thing. to know how involved were each of the big band arrangers obviously i assume you gave them a deadline to give you the arrangement otherwise i don't know how you you know rein everything in but did you then were they around for the readings were they around for the session when their piece was being recorded and did they want any input when it came to like mixing and balancing everything out how involved were they uh, great question. Um, so I gave them all deadlines, obviously. Some of them took longer. Um, <laughs> I want names, Jared. Give me names. No, it, all, it all worked out. It all worked out. Um, let's see. So, you know, Mike Holliber co-produced the big band record with me. He is a genius and I owe him so much to the way it turned out and to how good it is. Like without him, it would just be, you know, 
I always call myself a dumb drummer. I'm obviously not, but it would just be a dumb drummer producing it. Um, so yeah, he was very, very integral to the process. So obviously he was around very early and, um, you know, had his tune read and that was great. Um, Jim had already moved, I think, to Maine um, at this and kind of retired from Manhattan School. So he was not at his reading, but I believe I sent him a recording. Um, and obviously Jim and Mike are very close. So um, Jim was involved in the kind of mix process. Um, and he gave his two cents on his track, which was wonderful. Um, very helpful. Um, Darcy was there for a reading of his chart and had great notes. Um, and then basically that was it. Um, you know, he, he said, you know, do what, do what you're going to do with it. And, um, let's see, Lawrence was around for a reading of his chart very early on, which was great. And, um, then, you know, had, you know, just let, let me do my thing with it. And I think, probably hasn't even heard the final final track um and i think he heard a unmixed version and was obviously very pleased with it his is great um miho i think was just always out of town um and so she hers i mean hers is one of my favorites like she took a very simple trio tune and made it this incredible full-fledged like miho hazama m unit chart so i love i love it so much um, and I don't even, I just sent her the final, um, you know, record. So yeah, she wasn't, um, part of it. And she was, I think, again, like when I asked these arrangers to do that, I didn't say like with the first four, I think the first four were Mike, Jim, Alan and Darcy. And I, and I didn't tell them like who to have solo. They just, I just wanted them to choose so that was really cool and as things went along i said okay i have these people are soloing i gotta have a trombone solo so i think like i said for miho like put a trombone solo in there and then do whatever you want and then um with brian's i knew at that point like he was his was one of the last he was one of the last people i got and um i knew that i wanted to have a feature for like donnie mccaslin and ike sturm so like he was very thrilled with that, that he got to, you know, write for, for Donnie and Ike. So um, he was at, at the reading, the rehearsal. So I think it was really cool for him to be there for that. It was great. Um, he, you know, his, his chart has some like crazy uh, woodwind doubles in it. So I was, he was really into like being like, oh, Charles Pillow was playing bass flute on my track. You know, it was very cool. Um, Diversa lives in, in Miami, so he was not around for anything, but he was great and sent me a very uh, rough, like, kind of reading of his of his chart. And then, you know, he was involved in the mix process a little bit, and, you know, there were some, like, things that we were, hey, did you mean this? Did you want this? You know, like, should we, should we pitch this up? You know, and so that was cool. Um, and then... Who else? Who am I forgetting? Alan. Um, Alan played on all the sessions, so he was very involved. He, you know, with he heard his his chart read for the very first time, and um, you know, was had notes during the recordings. That was great, you know, to have him there and be part of the recordings because one of his charts is is you know my favorite, also one of my favorites. Um, so yeah, like the the degree of um, 
involvement varies, um, which is cool. And like some people just said, hey, yeah, do what you do what you're going to do with it. And then some people wanted more involvement. Yeah, it's neat. great that there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but there were no fires yeah. or pots boiling over. No, no fires. Only only no. good cooks. Yeah. And no. um, Jared. Only good cooks. What did you learn from this experience? Now that you're on the other side of it, to a degree. Um, I, I learned that making a, a big band record takes a lot of money and a lot of time. Like, um, if you do it right, it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time. You know, I, I know people who can turn big band records around in like a couple months, but man, that's not, I, as someone who's, you know, I'm, I'm working, all, I mean, prior to the pandemic, I was, you know, working all the time. I, I didn't really ever have a day off and a night off and like just scheduling time with my mixer, who is also incredible, Brian Montgomery, um, was such a pain in the butt because he was working all the time. So yeah, just the, the pre-pandemic, like this was really difficult and I and I wanted to get it out in the spring of 2020, but I don't think it would have happened anyway. Like just looking back and thinking, oh man, I, you know, we, during the pandemic, we did maybe six more mix sessions with me and Brian and Mike and like, how would that have happened during, during everyone's busy like life pre-pandemic? Um, so yeah, I, I learned that like, things take time to do and that's okay and like the fact that this was recorded two years ago is okay you know it still sounds as good as it would today probably better because everybody's rusty yada, yada. um but you know, maybe not but um you know like and that's okay and i learned because i'm i'm kind of a, a person that likes everything to get done really quickly and you know you know like i'm i'm always rushing around new york and and going from one gig to the next and like this was a really wonderful process for me just to to sit with the music and to let it let it be what it is and like to come back you know six months nine months later to both projects and say wow okay this does stand the test of time it was really good i still really like it um, and I'm really pumped to put it out, you know, like there, you know, there were times where I was thinking, oh man, I'm spending too much time and too much energy on the big band. Like, did I neglect the quintet project? And then I'd come back and, and be like, no, I, I just, it just was easier to do and like less cooks in the kitchen and like, you know, having a, a co-producer was wonderful in there with my wife and like people were just on fire when we did it and it was great and then you know with with the big band it obviously it just it's a giant project and it just takes more people and time so yeah a different beast would you do another big band album i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so um you know i i do like the idea of continuing to like commission um arrangers to do charts on my music and I guess at some point if there's enough to do another record then yeah we'll do it um we'll see I mean yeah it's not gonna happen for a while I, I just mentally I, I'm, I'm mentally and physically I'm exhausted from this project and I want to be able to play the big band music you know with a, a number of different people and like yeah my my I, my goal and my idea was to just be able to to, to play this music with a lot of different bands and uh, college bands and high schools and stuff because that had always been a big part of my my life was like doing educational things with colleges and clinics and um, high schools and stuff and giving back um, and you know mentoring younger musicians it's, it's important to me and 
and because I had a lot of great mentors and teachers as a as a young kid so that's yeah that's important to me well regardless of whether there are big band albums to come in your future or not I'm very glad that you put this one out and thank you really do applaud you um but not just because you know you attempted to climb this herculean mountain um but that you actually did you like summited stuck the landing uh and it's really gorgeous and i'm excited for people to hear it thanks i appreciate it such a pleasure uh and thank you for coming on the jazz session to talk about it my pleasure thanks thanks for having me this week's guest Jared Schoenig. His albums Two Takes Volume 1 and 2 are out on Anzac Records now and you can buy them wherever you find your music. You'll be able to find details about the tracks that were played today in the show notes for this week's episode. As usual I will post those and any other names or links that we might have mentioned. A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with the Jazz Sessions guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com slash join. Head there today if you want to become a Patreon member. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show, whether it's telling a friend, family, or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations. My name's Nikki Schrera, and I will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on The Jazz Session. Mm-hmm.